Hey, Cornwall Church, can you believe we are in August? Unbelievable. It is good to have you with us this weekend. Glad that you've tuned in and joined us uh, here in Whatcom County, here in Skagit County, throughout the United States and even beyond. Belize, good to have you as well. Some of you may not be aware of this, but this last week, Belize, the gathering of, of believers there, celebrated one year anniversary of coming together down there when Chris and Katie uh, started there in Hope Haven, so it's good to have you with us. And whatever home you're in uh, worshiping with us, again, I wanna point you back in Acts chapter 20, verse 20. We, we're doing just what the early church did. It says they met from home to home, from house to house, just like we're doing right now. And even if you go back further in Exodus, which we've been studying this summer, Exodus 33, it said that when Moses would go to meet with God, everyone, every household would stand at their tent and they would worship God at their tent. So what we're doing in our homes is not only reflective of what the early church did, it reflects what Israel did thousands of years ago. So what a great time for us to be together. What a great worship we just uh, engaged in with Ron and the team. Uh, so appreciate them and glad that you're here. I'm excited about today. There's got a lot of stuff we're going to cover and so we're going to get going. What we're going to focus on today, I think for some of you, you may have, if you've ever read through Exodus or the Bible or if you've studied this, you may have skipped over what we're going to look at or best case scenario, just kind of skimmed over. And if you skimmed over it, you probably thought this is just, it's outdated, it's not for me, it's irrelevant. There's, there's a lot of uh, detail, a lot of detail that just really doesn't apply at all. And it might be even kind of a little bit boring. And for most of my life, I would side with you on that, that this is just, just skim over this, it's not that big of a deal. But I think that when you begin to understand it, because this happened for me, when you begin to understand this and what we're gonna look at, you begin to see that what you thought was irrelevant, what you thought was just a bunch of minutia, just stuff to skim over, is some of the most beautiful, uh, sacred, uh, like fascinating aspects of God and his character and what he's doing in his grand narrative. And what we're gonna look at, I think is, is not only that, but I think it's, it could even be said that it's profound. And to alliterate, and it's prophetic, and it's profitable, and it's purposeful, even for us. What we're going to look at is like this, this hidden gem that's hidden in plain sight. It's so in plain sight, we miss it completely. So what we're going to talk about today is, wait for it, the tabernacle. Some of you are going, wah, wah. Tabernacle, just the word for some of you, brings, conjures up something, a thought, an image, whatever. I grew up in a tradition where every summer we'd go to camp meeting. We'd go out to the camp meeting, and every night at the camp meeting, we'd go to the, the tabernacle where we would have the evangelist and, and, and that whole thing. That's one of the things. Some of you, you hear the word tabernacle. You think Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. You think Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Here in Whatcom County, there's a, a, a body of believers, a fellowship called the Truth Tabernacle. You may have all kinds of different thoughts or images that come to your mind when you hear the word tabernacle. And my prayer is this, after our time together today, that for the rest of your life, when you hear the word tabernacle, it will just explode with praise and technicolor and high definition and 3D that you'll be going, wow, the tabernacle, unbelievable. So that's what we're going to do. That's our task that's before us today. Now, real quick, a little differentiation between the tabernacle and the temple. While there's some similarities and one kind of went into the other, we're talking about the tabernacle, not the temple. The tabernacle was a, a portable, sacred center for the Israel, Israelites. 
And, and when I say center, I mean like center of everything. And for us, it's got this deep theological imagery that's fulfilled in Christ. About a year and a half ago, I was planning one of our trips to Israel, and we decided we were going to go to Egypt as well. And we knew that we would have to travel from up in the northern part of, of Israel, clear down to the south, into Egypt, and there'd be a long trip down there. A friend of mine, Lori, who spent a lot of time in, in Israel, and, and she said, while you're going through the, the wilderness, it's a long travel day, there's some things you ought to stop and see. And one of the things that she said we ought to stop and see was a place called Timna Park. Now, this is a national park, a lot of recreation. There's some incredible things there, ge uh, geological figures and, and the Solomon's Mines and, and these columns and, and uh, you know, mountain biking and hiking and a desert oasis and all this stuff. But she said, you need to stop there. Those are great. But what you really need to see is the tabernacle. So in Timna, they've created this, this life-size replica of the tabernacle, tabernacle with all the different elements, and it's like to scale, one-to-one, -one, exactly according, uh, I say exactly, in the Old Testament, it was measured by cubits. A cubit was from the tip of the elbow to the tip of the fingers, so 16, 18 inches, depends on whose cubit we're talking about, okay, but roughly to scale, was this tabernacle. So uh, I put it in the itinerary, and I was like, okay, we'll go check it out. Well, we went there, and we're going through. There's a man named Ben, young man named Ben. Pretty unassuming, pretty uh, low-keyed man. Brilliant young man. And he walked us through this tabernacle experience. And as he's explaining things, I mean, I'm just like going, wow. And I, and I looked over at Pastor Jeff, and he's like, dude. And I look over at my sister, and she's like, and it's like, as we're going through this, in fact, one point, we'll get in there, and I, and I just stopped him. That's kind of the tour director's prerogative. I just said, Ben, hold on a second. And I just looked at our group and said, do you guys hear it? Do you see it? Do you get it? I mean, we walked out of there. For some of us, it was like the spiritual, one of the spiritual highlights of the whole trip. We were saying, wow, this, 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 is, this is amazing. Whoa, I cannot even believe that. And honestly, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on this, so I'm going to get going. We've just got one week we're going to spend on it, and I'm going to see as much, if we can get as much as we can on this. Here's the context where we left off last week. God has brought his people. They're out in the wilderness. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. He's offered them this great deal. They enter into the covenant, say, yeah, we'll do it. And Moses goes back up on the mountain. He's going to be up there for 40 days. And we kind of jumped around a little bit, so he's going to come down with the tablets. It hasn't quite happened yet. He goes back up on the mountain. And while he's up on the mountain for these 40 days, God gives him the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. And in that time, we read this of what God says to Moses. Then have them, talking about Israel, have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this, here's the word, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Three things here. One is the tabernacle. That's what we're going to talk about the remainder of our time. So much here. But he says, I want you to make it exactly like the pattern I will show you. I'm going to show you on the mountain how I want this done. He says, and I don't want it just good enough, and I don't want to just kind of give you a sketch. He gets very specific, very specific details, and there's this kind of repeated refrain throughout the last part of Exodus where it talks about how he would do this just as he had been commanded, 
happens three or four times when God's given him the instructions. Do this just as I've shown you, just as I've commanded you. And then in Exodus chapter 40, when, when he finally sets up the tabernacle, five times in that chapter, says that Moses did this just as the Lord had instructed him. Very exact. And this is why some of you kind of glaze over when you read this. It's because there's a lot of detail. I mean, tiny details, not just measurements and not just what's going to be in it and where they go, but things like what kind of thread you're going to use and what kind of materials are you going to use for the little brackets that the curtains are going to hang on. I mean, how are you going to build the bases and what are the, all these things, all this detail. In fact, there's an absolute disproportionate amount of space and attention given to the details of the tabernacle. Exodus 25 to 31, those six chapters give the instruction about this tabernacle. Exodus uh, 35 to 39 talks about the construction of the tabernacle, and a lot of it is repetition. God says, do this. We did this. I mean, it's just almost word for word. And then Exodus 40 is when, when Moses actually sets up the tabernacle. 13 chapters in the latter part of Exodus are dedicated to the tabernacle and what's going on. The Ten Commandments got like one chapter. The tabernacle gets 13. And in this verse, we see why God would even give all these instructions, why he would want them to have a tabernacle. The whole purpose for it in the first place is I will dwell, and that's going to be a key word we're going to see today, I will dwell among them. And what he's saying is I want you to do this, this tabernacle, and what you see is the heart of God, and it's God's desire to be with. His desire to be with them. He doesn't just want to be aloof. He doesn't want to just stand off far away. He doesn't want to just be up in the cosmos somewhere. He doesn't want to just be on the mountaintop with the clouds and the lightning and the thunder. He doesn't want to just be outside the camp. He wants to be among them. He wants to be with them. He says, you remember, I'm the one that brought you to myself. I'm the one that delivered you. I'm the one that carried you out on eagle's wings. And I want you to be with me. And specifically, he says this in Leviticus chapter 26, I will put my dwelling place, there's that word again, my dwelling place among you, among you, not outside, but among you, and I will not abhor you, I will walk among you. Okay, whoa, 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 pause for a second. He says, not only am I going to be among you, I will walk among you. Where, where have I heard that before? Isn't that what God did with Adam and Eve in the garden, he walked with them in the cool of the day. It could be that he's, okay, hold that thought. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And he just reminds him of this again and again, so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with your heads held high. You had been slaves, you had been beaten down, you had no identity. But I've called you my people, my nation, my kingdom, my treasured possession. You'll be in a covenant with me. And he says, and I want you to build a tabernacle so that I can dwell among you. I can walk among you. And here's the cool thing. This has always been God's desire. I alluded to it already. When he creates Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. And he wants to be with them. Now he has this covenant with Israel because he wants to be with them. Years later, Isaiah would prophesy and he said, this would be a sign to you that the virgin will be with child and she will give birth and you are to give him the name 
Emmanuel, what's it mean? Go ahead and say it in your living room. Emmanuel, which means God with us. And again, Matthew would quote Isaiah when Jesus was born that, that the virgin gave birth and they called him Emmanuel because God is with us. And Jesus said, it's not just me being with you. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit and he will be within you. So that it's not now just just in a garden somewhere. It's not in a tabernacle somewhere. It's not just with Jesus. He says, I will be within you. That's always been God's desire. And this is so cool. Fast forward, it comes full circle because in all of eternity, we find this in Revelation when John gets his vision into uh, the new heaven and the new earth. He says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now here it is again, the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. What we are experiencing in the tabernacle, what we experience in Jesus, what we experience in the Holy Spirit is this foretaste of what we will have for all of eternity. Okay, okay, I gotta keep moving on. Let's get back to the word tabernacle. This word tabernacle that brings up so many images and so many thoughts in your minds. The word tabernacle is a noun and a verb. It can be a noun, it can be a verb. This, this is not terribly unique. We have a lot of words that way. Water. Water is a thing. That's a noun. Person, place, or thing. Bring me some water so that I can water, verb, the plants. Bring me some paint so that I can paint the wall. It's a noun and it's a verb. Those, those kind of things. Bring me that plant so that I can plant it. Tabernacle is the same way. The tabernacle as a noun is this place. It's this sanctuary. It's this holy place. But tabernacle also means to dwell. So in essence, God is saying, I want you to build me a tabernacle so that I can tabernacle amongst you. Because I've already brought you to myself, now I want to tabernacle amongst you. So where is this to happen? All right, Numbers chapter 2 says this. The Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, some distance from it. Each man under his standard with the banners of his family. He says, when you set up the tabernacle... I don't want you to set up your camp first. I want you to set up the tabernacle and then you camp around it. And then if you read this, it goes into very specific instructions. Three of the tribes will be to the south. Three of the tribes will be to the west. Three of the tribes will be to the north and three of them to the east. Which kind of makes like a cross. But it was also a very, very clear and visual reminder that God is at the center that where the tabernacle would be set up, they would encamp around it, and it was a physical reminder of a spiritual reality, that God would be at the center not only of their camp, that God would be at the center of their nation, God would be at the center of their law, God would be at the center of their homes, God would be at the center of the way that they deal with things in civil, uh, in, in their, in their, in their uh, interactions as, as a country, God would be in the center in how they would deal with others, like aliens and outsiders and widows and orphans, that God would be at the center. He would be at the center of their law. He'd be at the center of their worship. He'd be the center of everything that the tabernacle spoke this theological truth that it's a physical place, but it's a spiritual reality that I will be at the center. I will be your God and you will be my people. And he says, so build me a tabernacle so that I can tabernacle right in your midst. And not only that, but when I'm there, I will not only be at the center, but I will guide you. I will lead you. I will direct you. Because this is how it, it, it worked. In, in Exodus, it says, in all the travels, because you know they're going to be out in the wilderness for 38, 40 years, in all the travels of the Israelites, 
Whenever the cloud, oh, I wish we had, I wish we had time to go into the cloud and the Shekinah glory. Okay, never mind. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. Tabernacle's there. The presence of God is there. It's visible. It's a cloud. As long as it stays there, they stay there. When the cloud leaves, they pick up and they leave. The Levites would, would gather up the, the tabernacle and they would follow the cloud. Cloud there for a week, we're staying a week. Cloud there for a decade, we're staying a decade. Cloud there for a day, we're staying a day. Cloud leaves, we're going with it. He says, I will not only be at the center, but I will guide you and I will lead you. So he, here's the amazing thing, and again, I've already alluded to this, is that the tabernacle was in one sense looking backward at the garden. The Garden of Eden, I've already, I've already kind of talked about that. The Garden of Eden, where God dwelled with this undiluted dwelling with his people, where everything was perfect, where it was holy, where there's beauty, where, where there's this, this dwelling and walking with and communing and fellowshipping, the creator with the creation, God with humans. And then sin enters into the picture. And God has said, if you sin, there will be death. And there will be a separation. And Adam and Eve sin. And now, what was once perfect, this undiluted presence of God, is now separated. And now there's going to be death. In fact, even God's act of grace and mercy of covering over their shame was a result of death when he took the life of innocent animals to create skins for them. Now there's going to be a separation. And now there's going to be death. And now there's going to be a barrier between God and his people. The holy God and sinful creation. In Exodus chapter 3, or Genesis chapter 3, he sends Adam and Eve out of the garden. It says, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim, that's this angelic being, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. At this point, the only way to get back into a right relationship with God is that somehow you have to pass through this flaming sword of death where the cherubim are on the east side. Now I'm going to get way ahead of myself. But when they set up the tabernacle, some of those details that God was so specific about is that the entrance of the tabernacle would always be on the east side. And the first thing is we'll see here in a minute, the first thing as you walked in beyond that barrier was the altar where they would sacrifice, where something has to go under the sword, where they would burn it on the altar. And when you finally got into the very presence of God on the curtain that separated into the Holy of Holies, there were cherubim on that curtain. It's almost as if saying, what was destroyed in the garden I am going to make a way. The truth is this. You have sinned. There's, there's a separation. There's death. There's barriers. The grace is this. God says, I want to dwell with you. I want you to be back in my presence, and I will make a way. It's like we're going back in to the garden. Oh, so cool. And, and this whole uh, uh, tabernacle was looking forward to Christ. As we've seen all summer long, we will see this again and again and again 
today is that all these details that God has about this tabernacle and all this beauty and all these elements and all these pieces of it, every single one is symbolically pointing to Jesus that he would come and that he would bring salvation. And when you really study the tabernacle, when you begin to understand it, when you really grasp all these things, I want to tell you, at that point, if you read Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10, all of a sudden, you'll be going, oh my goodness, okay, whoa, never under, wow, that is amazing. And we're going to look a little bit at that at the very end, but let me just give you one for instance. Hebrews uh, chapter 8. Talking about some priests, which we'll get to, they served at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. One more little side. If you ever read Revelation 4 and 5, it's like what you're seeing are the elements from the tabernacle like completely, exponentially exploded. It's like, okay, that's like, that's a little shadow of heaven, not just, not just the garden, even of heaven. Okay, I can't, I can't talk about that. Shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. Here's that refrain. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. The tabernacle, the priests, the sacrifices, all of that was good. But it was limited on what it could actually deliver. It was just a picture of something better. The better promises found in Jesus that he could and would deliver on. Okay, you ready to start looking at the tabernacle? Whew, another 20 minute intro. We're on fire here. Okay, so because Israel did not have yet like Bibles, they didn't have scrolls, they didn't have it, God would communicate them visually. And so, as we've talked about, the very temple, the very setup of the camp was a it was a Bible study. It was a visual illustration. God saying, I'm speaking theological truths to you. With that in mind, we're going to use some pictures, images. Most of them are artist renditions or pictures of an artist's replica of the tabernacle. All right, we'll start this way. In the tabernacle out here um, in this, this kind of this enclosure, there was this uh, area. Remember, this is the tabernacle, not the temple. It's much smaller than most people think. This wasn't like in the temple in Jesus' day where they estimate that maybe up to two or 300,000 people could gather. This is a tabernacle. And it's got this, this courtyard, this outer courtyard with this area, but it's all enclosed by this curtain around. It's this enclosure, roughly 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, with the the opening, the entrance on which side? Little quiz, which side? Right, the east side. Now, the people, the run-of-the-mill people, the Israelites, could not go into this enclosure. They could come out to the front of it, but they could not go in that, that first entrance. There was a curtain there, a separation, a barrier. That was a lesson for them, that a, a sinful person could not go into the presence of a holy God. There was a barrier. They could go out to the front, but only the Levites and the priests could go into this courtyard. And then inside of the courtyard, as you see, there's this other thing that's like a tent, and that has two chambers as well. 
The first chamber is the holy place, and the second one is the holy of holies, or the most holy place. And at each of these barriers, each one of them had a curtain separating. Each one of them had a barrier that had to be gone through. Is that in this courtyard, this open courtyard, the Levites could go, and the priest. Into the next chamber, only the priests could go, and into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest, and only one day a year. I think in about a month or so, I'm gonna spend an entire weekend just talking about that day. So we won't go into that a whole lot. But in this courtyard, there were a few things. Remember, there's a barrier, there's a separation between sinful man, that's the truth, but God is opening a way, that's the grace. And as they come in, the first thing they see is this altar right here, where there would be sacrifices, where the priests would sacrifice. The people would come and they say, for my sins, I need this sacrifice. And they would sacrifice these animals. Day after day after day after day. Remember, there may be up to like two million people and they're bringing their, their sacrifices for their sins and people are sinful and so they're having to do this. So there's nonstop sacrifices. They're just going after this over and over and over again. Because the sacrifice would atone, which means to cover over, would cover over their sin. Because remember, sin resulted in death and life is in the blood, so there had to be a death. And so they would substitute the death of an animal so they wouldn't have to do. Substitutional atonement, someone else would die on my behalf. Sound? Okay, we don't have time for that. After that, there's this basin. The Bible doesn't talk a lot about this, but this is where the priests would wash their hands and their feet because if they touched a carcass, a dead animal, they were ceremonially unclean. It didn't mean they were sinful. They were just ceremonially unclean. This is where you see the wisdom of God. They didn't even know about germs, but he says, my law is to, is to protect you. So they would have to, to wash their hands and their feet because they've been dealing with these carcasses of these animals as they're sacrificing them. Hey, okay, a little side note that's so cool. So there's a sacrifice and the fire, the sacrifice to atone for my sins. There's this wash here to, to, to be ceremonially cleansed. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ah, oh, so cool. Okay, so you got that one. But then you see there's this, there's this barrier here and there's this tent. I'm going to give you a little cutaway of, the, of an artist rendition of this tent, what's going on here. You have the two chambers, the holy place and the holy of holies. And inside there are different aspects with great specificity of how they should be created. One of them is this lampstand. So you have the lampstand, and uh, it's made of, of pure gold. We have a, a picture of, of the lampstand, made of pure gold. Some of you have seen a menorah. This is a, a seven, uh, six branches in a, a center one, of seven branch menorah, not a nine branch, which comes with, with uh, Hanukkah later, I believe. Um, anyway, so this is made out of pure gold, pure 100% gold. Now, the priest had to go in every morning and every night to tend to the lampstand. There was a very practical reason for the lampstand. They're in this tent. It's enclosed. There's no electricity. This would bring light in their very practical sense. This would bring light. But maybe if you're a little bit astute and thinking through how does all this point to Jesus, you would think about this fact that in John chapter 1, when it talks about Jesus coming, it says that, that the true light was bringing light, that his life 
would bring light to all men. That the light that brings light would come and bring it. And Jesus would say, I am the light of the world. Okay, there's so much about this that we can't, we don't have time with the almond blossoms and the buds and how they created it. That was on the south side of this inner, uh, of the sanctuary. On the north side was a table that had some bread. It's, the, it's called the table of the presence, the table of showbread, the table of presence. Remember, God's whole desire is he wants to be with them. Here's the interesting thing. The table, um, the Ark of the Covenant, the incense altar, they all have a similar um, uh, instructions on how to be created, how to be built. They're to be made out of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. I don't think that's a minor detail. Look at the symbolism of it. Acacia wood was just this wood that grew out in the desert. It was commonplace. It was ordinary. Gold was precious and valuable. It's like there's this picture of this ordinary creation and this beautiful, valuable creator coming together. The human and the divine. That this is where the lines get a little bit blurred. Earth, heaven come together. And on this table, there are 12 of these flat loaves of bread, six on each side, representing most likely the 12 tribes of Israel. That would make most sense. But even think of the picture of that, that God is saying, I'm inviting you to my table. I'm bringing you to my table. This is where we talk. This is where we laugh. This is where we're fed. This is where we we have great conversations. I want you to be in fellowship with me at my table. And if you remember uh, four weeks ago, when Pastor Kip talked about the manna, and how God provided, that God has this bread that's symbolic of, of how, how he would provide for them. And Jesus would say, I am the bread of life. You see how it all points there? And only the priest could go in here and the priest would eat this bread once a week. Maybe a precursor to something that would happen years later when Jesus sits around a table with some other guys Starts with 12, ends up with 11. And he takes bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. So cool. Okay. On the backside of the whole deal is, is the curtain and there's this, this uh, altar of, of incense. Again, altar of incense. It's made out of acacia wood. It's overlaid with gold. It's where, where heaven and earth come together. It's where God and, and humanity come together. And here again, the priest twice a day would go in to light the incense as they would care for the, for the, the, the lampstand. They would light the incense in the midst of the truth of the stench of sin and the pain and, and, the, and the smell of the sacrifices. There's the grace of the beautiful aroma of the, of the incense that goes up. And in scripture, you see this picture that incense is like the prayers of the people going up before God. And so here comes the priest every single day to light the incense, this symbolic. On the back of that is this curtain that I was talking about with the cherubim. This was different than the other two curtains. The other two were barriers that had to be gone through. This one only was gone through once a year and only by the high priest. This was a frightening place to be. And behind that curtain, if you ever saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know where we're going on this one, okay? Behind that curtain in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, most people look at this and say, well, that's the Ark of the Covenant. This was the Ark of the Covenant. A box made out of, any guesses? Acacia wood overlaid with, any guesses? Gold, the divine, the human coming together. And you know what God said, I want you to put inside that box? 
I want you to put the tablets of the covenant, the law, the ones that we haven't looked at this yet, the ones that literally Moses would shatter and break, and the ones that every single one of us have broken as well. And with the broken law of God comes judgment. This is the best. So in this box where God gives to to, to humanity, his law, and we all break it. And there's judgment for us. He says, and I want you to put something on the top, the lid. The lid is not made out of acacia wood. This is not humanity. This is not from the earth. This is 100% pure gold. This is all divine. And create this lid that sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant with these two cherubim that are facing forward. And this spot right here, between the wings, that's where God says, I will dwell. And that spot right there is referred to as the mercy seat. Look at this, look at this, look at this. In the box is the law that we've all broken and the law that's broken us. And God, from his seat of mercy, looks down on the judgment With mercy, in James it says, mercy triumphs over judgment. I mean, just the very positioning sends this message. It preaches a sermon that, yes, we're all guilty. We've all broken the law. And God alone comes with his mercy. And there's nothing in this spot. And this is where in any other religion, the place of the dwelling of God There would be some idol, and God says, you will not have any other idol. You will not make an idol, because I cannot be shrunk down and misrepresented by your idol. And in that spot, this is what God says happens. It says, there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. That's where I will come. That's where I will dwell. Now, that's a very quick overview, and I wish I had so much more time because there's so much more. But I just kind of gave you a tour through. Here's this enclosure with an opening on the east. You go in the opening on the east. There's an altar. That's where the sacrifices are done. There's a basin. That's where there's cleansing from from the ceremonial uh, uncleanness. You go through another barrier into the sanctuary. There's the light, the lampstand, the light of the world. There's the table of showbread, the table of presence. We're invited to his table where the bread of life is and the prayers of the saints go up. And then across this back uh, final barrier into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. It just kind of walks us straight through it. When God gives the instructions about how to to put together this tabernacle, and when they start constructing it, and when Moses puts it together, he does not go in that order. In fact, he goes in the exact opposite order. Not he, Moses. He, Yahweh. In Exodus chapter 40, it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting on the first day of the first month and look where he starts. Not with put out a parameter, you know, keep everybody out. Look where he starts. Place the ark of the testimony in it. He starts at the deepest place, the very presence of God. Look at the flow of it. The ark of the testimony and shield the ark with the curtain. Then he goes out. Bring in the table and set out what belongs in it. Then bring in the lampstand and set up the lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the ark of the testimony and put 
the curtain at the entrance of the tabernacle. Place the altar of burnt offerings in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put the water in it. Set up the courtyard around it and put the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. Do you see what God did here? This was not an accident. This is very intentional. When he gives the instruction, when they're creating it, when Moses sets it up, every single time God insists, it's from the inside out. It starts in the deepest place. And the message it sends is, I want to be with you, but it's not you working your way towards me. It's me in my mercy opening a way for you to come and be right. Oh, my word, how good is that? It's just amazing. The truth is that our sin has separated us. There's barrier after barrier after barrier. And the grace of God says, I am opening up a way. And it's my work. I mean, don't we see this everywhere throughout Scripture? You didn't choose me. I chose you. We love him only because he loved us first. We can come into him only because he made the way for us. All right. I, I'm, okay, let's keep going. So one of the things I skipped over was the priests. The priests, they're the ones that, that, that do all of this stuff. And it says this about the priest real quick. Then dress Aaron, he's the, the high priest at the time, dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint him and consecrate him so he may serve me as priest. So there was very specific <laughs> laws and rules of what the priest is to wear. Obviously, I don't follow those. Obviously, we don't have much of a dress code here. I mean, look at yourself. Okay, so the priest had a lot of specific things they had to wear Again, every single piece of this points to Jesus. Let me just point one thing out. This is kind of a, a freaky picture uh, of, of a mannequin priest with all these different things. But the two I want to point out is that on his shoulders, there were two onyx stones, six tribes inscribed on one, six inscribed on the other. And he would wear on his shoulders the 12 tribes of Israel. As if to say, I go into the Holy of Holies shouldering the burden bearing the responsibility for the nation. Does that sound a little bit like Isaiah 53, where Christ takes on him our punishment, where he bears our burden? And then this breastplate with these 12 precious stones, each one of them inscribed with one of the tribes that hear what is most valuable, what is closest and nearest and dear to me are the people that I've loved and called and redeemed. The truth is, I bear the burden of their sin. The grace is, they are near and dear to me, and I love them. Hey, one more little detail that, oh, don't have time for this, but it's so cool. Okay, go on. Next, uh, Around uh, this, the um, ephod, the gold bells and the pomegranates are to alternate around the hem of the robe. Aaron must wear it when he ministers. Why? So he's ready for the jingle bell run? No. The sound of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he will not die. All right. In um, 2018, I was in Israel and I met this guy. His name is Eli Shukran. Eli Shukran. Um, and uh, the reason I'm dressed this way is we're in the city of David getting ready to walk through Hezekiah's tunnel, which is so cool. But Sam said, hey, Bob, I want you to meet Eli Shukran. Eli Shukran is another guide in Israel but he's also an archaeologist. And while he was doing some archaeology, some excavations in the city of David, where David's temple or David's, um, David's palace was, where the tabernacle eventually became before Solomon's temple, 
he unearthed this, this little gold bell. Now, there's no guarantee that it was from the high priest's robe, but it's pretty cool that there'd be a little gold bell in the very place where the tabernacle had been. Okay, that was just fun. I just, I just, I just like that. Okay, so the priests, their work, the priest work is never finished. I mean, there's in the Day of Atonement, they're in, in the Holy of Holies. The priest work is never finished. We'll get that one there for you. They're in the Holy of Holies, in the sanctuary. They're there twice a day, morning and night, out in front they've, at, the, at the altar with the sacrifices. Day after day after day, it's never finished. Some of you know where I'm going with this one. Jesus hanging on the cross, our great high priest. Jesus hanging on the cross. It says this. Knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In Hebrews chapter 10, I believe it's verse 12, it says, and when Jesus made the final sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down down. It's finished. No more sacrifices. No more needs to do this day after day after day. And Jesus does it once and for all. And at that point, the veil, the curtain, the barrier, the separation between God and a sinful man, holy God and a sinful man, is torn from top to, to bottom as if God says, we won't be needing that anymore because Jesus has done it once and for all. It's finished. You see, it's all fulfilled in Jesus. All of it is fulfilled in Jesus. Everything we talk about, you just see it over and over again. That, that there's this truth about our sin, about our separation, but the grace is that God comes and he makes a way and every single thing, Jesus is the curtain. Jesus is the doorway in. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the one who washes us clean with the water. Jesus is our living water. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the, the curtain into the Holy of Holies. Jesus is on the mercy seat. Jesus is the priest and the high priest and the sacrifice, and he does it all. It's all completed in him. I mean, how cool is all this? That all the tabernacle is saying, everything that's happening here, there's a practical thing for now, but it will all be fulfilled in Jesus. So Exodus 40, in the cloud, again, wish we had time for that, covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You see what's happening here. Now God says, this is why I'm doing all this, because I want to dwell with and among my people. And my glory will come. And I am the Lord. No other gods before me. I'm the one and only. And I come in my glory. Because the truth is, your sin has separated you from a holy God. But the grace is, I have opened up a way. I've come to dwell. I'm the one and only. It's my glory. There's truth, but there's grace. I can't wait. John 1, 17. The word became flesh and made his, and the word here can be translated tabernacle. 
his dwelling. He tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I mean, do you see it? Is that like the coolest thing in the world? Man, I wish this room was filled with people that were saying, amen. I mean, it's just unbelievable that all of that is fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm long, let's go. Real, qu- real quick, okay. I told you, when you understand the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the, and the priests and all that, suddenly Hebrews 7, 8, 9, 10 just comes alive. Can we run through about four or five of them real quick, okay? All right, uh, Hebrews chapter uh, uh, seven, is that where we are? Such a high priest, Jesus, meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, that's Jesus. Exalted above the heavens, that's Jesus. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. All right, let's keep moving on. The next one. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Like this was, this was just a man-made shadow. The greater, more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the bloods of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption, not just for a day, not just for a year, eternal redemption. Or how about this one in chapter 10? Um, The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. That that God had been creating a way, but it was just a foreshadowing. Do you remember Jesus saying something like, I am the way? All right, how about this one, Uh, chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy, we get to go into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. Not a dead animal way, a new way, a living way. The resurrected Christ opened for us through the curtain, the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us. Any of this sound familiar to the tabernacle from a guilty conscience and having our body washed with pure water. Do you see how it just comes alive? It's unbelievable. And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. No amount of bulls and lambs and sheep and goats and and trying harder, none of that, the law didn't work. We looked at that last week. It's only through me. I am the way. Um, There is one more that we have to talk about, though. And this takes it even to the next level. Hebrews 3, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Moses was was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. That's amazing in and of itself, but don't stop there. And we are his house. Let that sink in. 
God says, I don't dwell in temples made by man. We are his house. I don't dwell in a tabernacle. I don't dwell in a temple. I don't dwell in a church building. I dwell in my people. And Paul would reference this when he says in in Corinthians, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. Does that sound like the Garden of Eden? Does that sound like what God said he was gonna do with the tabernacle? Is that not what he's doing now? I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Can I just get in your face a little bit? I wanna tell you, I, I miss you. You do not know how badly I miss you. And I long to worship together in this room. I really, really do. But some of you who are saying, well, my spiritual life is just kind of deteriorating. I've kind of put that on hold till we get back together. Can I just say, wait a second. God doesn't dwell in this building. He dwells within you. And he's given you his living spirit to dwell right within you and he will never leave you or forsake you. And he's given you the word of God that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Listen, you have no excuse to let your spiritual walk deteriorate during this COVID crisis. You have the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you and the power of word of God at your disposal. You ought to thrive and flourish and explode in your spiritual life during this time. Yes, we miss meeting together. Yes, we miss worshiping together. But God is alive in his temple. You and me. Okay, I got, I, I got one more verse, don't I? Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.